Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Our topic today, how to think bigger in the quest for innovation. And my guest today is somebody who knows a thing or two about that topic. Her name is Sheena Iyengar, and she is the ST Lee Professor of Business at Columbia Business School. And she's one of the experts in this entire planet on choice and innovation. So, you know, just such a good fit for this show. In her 2010 book, The Art of Choosing, she talked about you know her theory of making choices, and it was a huge success. It was ranked by the Financial Times, McKinsey, and Amazon as one of the best business books of the year. She also has TED Talks, more than one, that have gotten more than 7 million views. And she's regularly in all of the top tier media, so all the places that you go for your best news. She is there. She holds dual degrees from the University of Pennsylvania and also the Wharton School, and she received her PhD from Stanford University. Her new book, which we're going to be talking about today, is called Think Bigger, How to Innovate. And you know what's interesting, too, about Sheena is that in her personal life as a blind woman, she has used this concept of Think Bigger to find her calling and to strive to aspire others to do the same. Now, what are we going to talk about today? This is one of these shows that you're going to love because for the builders in this crowd, and I know there are a lot of you, we're going to be talking about just some really interesting, paradoxical at times, things about how to build bigger and better. We're going to talk about brainstorming. Sheena hates brainstorming. Okay. <laughs> it's true. She's going to talk about the history of brainstorming and why it can be very ineffective to drive innovation. We're going to talk about what you should do instead because brainstorms are not going to cure cancer or climate change. So what are the other ways to do it? We'll get into the process that she recommends on how to do this. 
And we're going to find out where people get stuck and how you can push through like these common mistakes. And, you know, Sheena teaches students to do this all the time. She works with companies. She's just out there. So she sees a lot of things and she shares her knowledge with us. Now, my small ask today, if you are not on the list, you are missing out. I have a sub stack. We're going to do a monthly newsletter. It's I promise not to spam you, but it's going to talk about what is going on inside my head and what is going on in the world of FOMO sapiens. It is at patrickjmcginnis.substack.com. So if you want to know what is going on in this, I have a pretty large head in this large head of mine, <laughs> check it out. Patrickjmcginnis.substack.com. All right. And now on to the interview. As you know, I like to start every interview with the same question. So I started my conversation with Sheena with this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I would say that the biggest choice I ever made and actually the best choice I ever made in my life was the choice to study choice. And I made that choice back in 1992 and I've never regretted it. What? What drove that choice? Like, are you a are you a naturally decisive or indecisive person? Like, how does it fit into your sort of life? Uh, I I would say that I am naturally somebody who wants to find the answer, who wants to make a decision. I won't rush to it, so I'll recognize when I need to set, step back and not make a decision because I don't want to make a bad choice. Uh, but it is the case that when I don't know what I want, I will really, really drive myself crazy and persist to figure out what's the decision I want to make. And so I would say that um, growing up, I was very much, I think, thinking about choice, whether it was unconsciously or consciously, because I am blind. And so, you know, the idea of what choices I was going to have was just always a part of my everyday narrative. And so when I'm in college, I am constantly trying to ask the question, what career options do I have? What am I going to do so I'm not homeless? And so I'm, I'm very deliberatively, unlike you know many undergrads, I'm not just exploring for the sake of exploring. I'm being very deliberative about trying to figure out what would I like to do? What would people hire me to do? What could I be good at? And so uh, by the time I'm in graduate school, which was uh, in 1992 when I entered Stanford, I would say I, I, I literally went through an entire process by which I decided what career I was interested in, which was to be a professor. And then also uh, by the end of my first year in my PhD program, I knew that I would be, I was interested in human motivation and in particular, I wanted to study human choice making. Wow. I like that. I, I think it's interesting that, you know, we, context is so important about how we make our decisions, obviously. And, and you've just laid out how your own personal context drove your thinking. Now you have a new book out. Mm -hmm. It's called Think Bigger, How to yep. Innovate. And yep. I remember when I first heard about the book, part of me was like, well, all innovation is about choices. But it feels like it's also a kind of a new area, right? Because people would think, you know, okay, you know, it, it, decision-making is one corner of the world. Innovation is another. So what drove you to write this book? What was the inspiration to, to take on this challenge? So 
I came out with the book The Art of Choosing in 2010, as, as you might know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm on the road giving talks and people are asking me, well, this is really great, but how do I, what happens when I don't have a solution? Like you're telling me all the difficulties, all the best ways to pick, but what if there is no known solution? And I could fall back on my experience. I could fall back on what not to do because of what we know from decision-making, but I couldn't answer the question in a scientific way, what to do. Now, how did I get into the topic of innovation? In 2012, I was asked to be the academic director of the entrepreneurship program here at the Columbia Business School. And I never thought of myself as an entrepreneurship professor. I'd never taught entrepreneurship. I taught leadership and I taught decision-making. But the director of the entrepreneurship program at the time, he said, well, what is entrepreneurship? It's just choices. Hmm. You are more qualified to be the director of entrepreneurship than a lot of people. And I thought, huh, okay, I guess that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, you're right. Entrepreneurs are making choices from the beginning. And then my biggest task that year was to do a survey and a review of our entrepreneurship curriculum. And uh, and so, you know, I, I am coming at it from the perspective of an outsider, and yet what I hadn't realized was that I was also kind of an insider. I just hadn't known that. Um, so I'm, I'm reviewing the curriculum of our curriculum as well as our peer institutions, and I'm realizing that there are essentially three big buckets to that curriculum. First is... Um, you know, how do you analyze an industry to identify the gap? The second was the ideation phase. Mm-hmm. And the third was the sort of funding slash implementation slash market testing. You know, essentially, it's all about implementation. And what I realized was that actually there was a lot in bucket A and there was a lot in bucket C. But we kind of took Bucket B, almost for granted. But the only thing we had to offer on that was at Stanford, they had design thinking. Mm. Um, and, you know, and there were different variations of design thinking at different institutions. And, as, and so I thought, okay, well, we clearly need this at Columbia. And I started to do design thinking. And as I'm, and I began to teach it. And as I was teaching it, I realized that there were some fundamental flaws with this method that I knew as a decision-making scientist, that brainstorming was a field day for decision-making biases. It was was a flawed system. It was great for having a fun conversation, but it wasn't going to be a place where you were going to get really high-quality decision-making going on. And I began to edit it and change it. And then I'm realizing as I'm step-by-step going along that, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. We know so much about how the mind works from cognitive science, and we know so much about how the mind works from neuroscience. Why are we resorting to brainstorming? And and in fact, the best, the most famous neuroscientist um, in the area of learning and memory and how we form thoughts was right here at Columbia, was Eric Kandel. And, uh, And I began to realize that, you know, actually the method for teaching people ideation could absolutely be updated. We were teaching people stuff that was at least 50 years old. That's what corporate America was using and that we could do way better given recent advances in neuroscience and cognitive science. And that's really what led me to create the method. 
Now, in the end, I would say think bigger is a combination of my personal experiences as a blind person, because I was essentially intuitively doing the method without actually, you know, being deliberative about saying what it was. It Mm. was actually the method that I used to come up with my decision to study choice, but not that I was so precise about it back then. Um, And then I had just been editing it anyway as I was studying choice and then editing it further as I was studying neuroscience. And so I then said, huh, I think this actually is a totally different method and I think we should be teaching this to people. And so I started to teach it and I I can't remember exactly whether it was 2014 or 2015, but I began to teach it and it really began to catch on here at Columbia. And so in 2020, I, when the world shut down, I decided to write the book. If a Columbia Business School Press asked me if I would be willing to write the book. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. And then the universe conspired to have you write it with a pandemic. So we can thank one good thing came out of COVID. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now, I do want to you talk about brainstorming a little bit. You just kind of mentioned it, but you talk about it in the book. And this was all news to me. You know, it's one of these things we never think about. There sort of being like the first brainstormer, the, the, the place it came from. I love the story behind it. And I think that really frames up why you know, in, in what, you know, so you write about brainstorm is ineffective at its idea diarrhea. So tell us the story, where does brainstorming come from and why is it not, you know, the, the, the most effective or why is it an ineffective way for us to, to work today? So interestingly enough, even though we associate 
brainstorming with design thinking mm. and we associate it with Silicon Valley, just as an interesting factoid, since I know you were a New Yorker, it is actually was invented right here in New York. Um, and it was invented by um, uh, the senior executive of this big advertising firm, BBDO, that existed in the 1930s. And he originally called the method thinking up. But as people used it, it, it began, began to be called brainstorming. And that ended up being the, the book and the name that stuck. But his original book, which you can't find anywhere, is called Thinking Up. Now, what, it, what prompted this was that um, he realized that in the meetings that he would hold with his employees, that the employees would simply nod yes in agreement, and he wasn't actually getting any feedback or any input. Mm. And what he was trying to do was create more of a conversation and get more engagement because he didn't want everybody to be yes people. He actually wanted information. And so he came up with these five rules, which have now become synonymous with design thinking. Defer judgment, build on the ideas of others, go for quantity, encourage wild ideas. So he came up with those five things really as a way to get people to talk. And it's actually a beautiful set of rules to create a wonderful dinner conversation. Does it help ideation? Well, if you have five different people that are in charge of five different tasks within an organization, and they normally don't communicate with one another, you bring them in a room and you have them share what they know, it's a, be it's a very quick and efficient recipe for creating phenomenal coordination. And in fact, that's why brainstorming took off, because during World War II, we initially you know, lost a lot to the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, and we were woefully unprepared. And what, the, what um, Eisenhower ended up doing was using this so-called brainstorming method to get various parts of the military to communicate with one another. Because remember, overnight, they had to produce like weapons, like mm -hmm. planes, like etc. And so simply getting people who have different bits of information to share and coordinate, it's phenomenal. And I would still use brainstorming for that. The problem is that over time, people got confused and started to think that that was the method to actually create ideas. Mm. If they don't have the knowledge and it's not about sharing information. It's all about just come up with wild ideas. There's no basis of those ideas. Those ideas aren't going to go anywhere, not to mention the fact that the very ideation exercise itself is going to be biased because whatever you say first, I'm supposed to build on that, and then the next person is supposed to build on that. Well, if you had given me time to think on my own, I wouldn't have built on you. I probably would have thought about something totally different, which might have actually been more relevant. So it is a it's it is a bias making exercise. It's also uh, while it feels good, it's actually not a good decision making uh, or decision creating exercise. It can be a great information sharing and information coordination exercise. That's actually an insight that I think anybody can use here is 
that you know repurposing and reframing a brainstorm as a way of building sort of sharing of information and consensus building and rather than simply trying to come up with the moonshot feels like a non-obvious thing that one can do but it could be very powerful but if you are trying to come up with that insight if you are trying to you know cure cancer uh, and brainstorming isn't going to do it. What is the alternative that you recommend? <laughs> exactly? It, I, I love the way you put it. It's not going to. You're not going to have a quick brainstorm to cure cancer or cure climate change. No. Or solve <laughs> the problem of how is Chat GPT going to affect my business, which a lot of companies are thinking about. By the way, one other thing I would say about brainstorming is I have now asked over ten thousand people from whether they be students or executives, and I'll ask them a simple question. Where do you get, think back to the last time you had your best idea. Mm -hmm. Where were you? What were you doing? Oh, I'll answer that for you. I'll be 10,001. I can tell you the places. I mean, it's not, I bet it's the same from everybody, but the places, or not everybody, but a lot of people, the places where I get my best ideas are uh, after taking a nap and on the yoga mat. Right, because okay. it's like you're in a mindful space. Okay, brilliant. So you've you've actually confirmed exactly what everybody does. They never come up with brainstorming. No. You, I've had in all the years I've done that question, maybe a handful of people will have said that they had their best idea in a brainstorming or in a meeting. Now, let's go back to what happened to you on the yoga mat. Mm-hmm. And after taking a nap, because that is actually in line with what are the most common responses. It is sleeping or engaging in some sort of physical exercise or some sort of routinized activity right, the like cooking. It's always the shower. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Now, I should tell you, and I'm not going to tell you that this happened to your ideas, but I should tell you that when we actually track people's aha moments, it turns out that about 20% of your aha moments will come during those off hours, and we do tend to overweight those. Mm. And what happens weeks later when we look at which ideas you're actually more likely to have implemented because they worked out, they're not the ones that came from the off hours. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something very special mm. about what's going on during those off hour moment. So let's talk about how you actually form insights. So let's say I ask you a question, like some silly question, like how would you, if I gave you a box of toothpicks, you know, how, how would you, can you come up with a whole bunch of ways in which you could use it? Or maybe a more, or maybe a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now is I have this new technology called ChatGBT, how am I going to use that? Mm-hmm. And what you're going to do is you have a whole bunch of shelves in your brain. Think of it as a library system or a giant Excel spreadsheet. And in each little cell, you have a different information node that you've been collecting since the day you were born. So you've created this entire knowledge inventory system in your head. And so when I ask you the question, what do you do with toothpicks? You're going to immediately go to the shelves of your mind and say, oh, where have I seen toothpicks? Mm -hmm. Those are going to be your first responses. By the way, that's everybody's responses. Those are low-hanging fruits. So your initial rush, which feels really good, 
is actually the most conformist and redundant ideas. And that's also, is that cognitive bias, would you say? Yeah, we're convinced that, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's it's whatever's accessible. It's whatever's Mm -hmm. available to us. So um, chat GBT is whatever you happen to, if I ask you what are the, how would you use it? You're probably relying on whatever you read yesterday or the day before in the newspapers and what you're hearing your friends or other people talk about, right? Maybe on Twitter, et cetera. So that's what's going to happen initially. Then later, if I gave you more time and I forced you to keep thinking and thinking and thinking, then what are you going to do? Well, you're stuck. You got to come up with more uses. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to other portions of your brain and you go to other shelves that are maybe not as available to you normally. And you say, well, let me reframe. Okay, what does ChatGBT remind me of? Well, it reminds me of like, assistance that I might use or reminds me of learning a language or reminds me of um, when I was playing that video game. You you see where I'm going, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm reminded of all these things. I'm like, well, so maybe I could use it in these other ways. You see how I've, because I'm going to other shelves of my mind, I'm reframing. Okay. So what we know is that when we force you to keep persisting, you are going to generate more ideas and they're going to be more unique ideas. They're more creative ideas because you're going to parts of your mind that you didn't initially go. Of course, in order for you to come up with an amazing idea, if the information doesn't exist in your brain already, Mm -hmm. you're not going to come up with it. It's not like your brain suddenly have, has divine intervention enter it, such that it puts something on the shelf that didn't exist. What your brain's going to do is take whatever information bits it has, connected with some other information bit that it has, makes a connection or a combination, and spits it out. You're doing that creative exercise all the time. What Think Bigger does is essentially keeps that in mind. We're not doing anything that's different from what neuroscience tells us how your mind already works. The only thing I'm doing is I'm showing you how to take advantage of it more, how to be more deliberative about collecting that information, organizing that information so that one, two, three, when I ask you the question, how could your organization benefit from chat GBT or are there ways in which ChatGBT might be a threat to what your company is currently doing? You know how to collect, inf- how to organize the information, how to collect information, and what bits of information to try to combine to create a solution for yourself. FOMO. FOMO. So you've been teaching this to students now. You mentioned you created a class like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, when you work with students, you know, who are bright and motivated and want to do this and, and employ this methodology, I imagine there are things that they do very well and there are mm-hmm. things that they really struggle with. What, you know, if, if for everybody who's listening, who is going to read this book and mm-hmm. is going to employ the methodology, what are the things that they typically are going to struggle with? Like, what do they need to be on the lookout for in order to successfully apply these principles? The two 
I would say the three big challenges, because this is not as easy as just waiting for an idea to materialize, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is actually, it's a skill. It's like learning how to dance or learning how to code. So it, it is, or you know, any kind of a skill, you're gonna have to practice it. And so what I teach them in class uh, yes, they are applying it to something pretty difficult, which is an entrepreneurial problem that they're trying to create an entrepreneurial idea. But I'm not expecting them to produce the next unicorn. I'm just teaching them the method so that they can keep practicing it and then eventually create their unicorn. There are three big challenges that I have. The first is, so there's six steps to think bigger. Mm -hmm. And I would say the hardest steps are really steps one, four, and six. Step one is defining the problem. You know, 72% of companies fail when they try to solve a problem because they end up solving the wrong problem. <laughs> um, and as Einstein once said, you know, if I had an hour to save the planet, I would spend the first 55 minutes thinking about the problem and the last five minutes thinking about the solution. Wow. And people are do tend to rush to defining the problem. It, it really does behoove you to really figure out what exactly is that problem I'm trying to solve for and to define it in a way that's concrete, that's feasible to solve, and just as importantly, if you solve it, that that solution is scalable. Mm. You know, that was the secret behind Apple, Netflix, Amazon, you know, Bill Gates, I mean, you name it. Every successful innovator, that was their secret. They all started small. We forget that Amazon started with just books. Mm -hmm. And Netflix started with just sending you a DVD in the mail. Mm -hmm. They started small, but they started with something that was meaningful to people at the time and that from there, once they solved that problem, they could scale. So... Defining that problem is big. The, the second big challenge in the method is what I call searching in and out of the box. Like we often tell people, think out of the box, and we try to. Now, I make it easier for you in that I actually tell you how to think out of the box. I, I no longer leave that as a mystery. I say, look, in order to think out of the box, you actually have to go to other boxes. That's mm -hmm. what the great innovators did. They find ways to solve specific parts of their problem by literally looking in other industries, right? What made Einstein a genius wasn't that he had just a magical brain. It was that he was a patent officer for six years and learned all about things like refrigeration and typewriters and making clothes. And... Um, you know, there was a, a, a guy named Reed Hastings, and he happened to understand that you could learn from gym membership a new way to charge people for watching movies, um, and so on and so forth. So it's, you are able, I try to, I do find that it's, I tell people, you define the problem, and then you have to ask yourself, who else has had an analogous problem? Mm in the present or in the past, and how did they solve it? Collect those tactics that, that have been used. You know, what happens is that most of the time, people are really good at coming up with tactics in adjacent industries. Where they have a challenge is really being able to search far and wide. 
and that's because usually our experience and knowledge set tends to be um, much more narrowly focused. Um, and so that's, I would say, something that I do spend a lot of time trying to get them out of their comfort zone to learn about other boxes. Uh, because the quality of your ideas depends on the quality of the tactics you have. Um, just like what I was saying before, if you don't have that information on the shelf of your mind, you're not going to be able to use it. Yeah, this whole thing, this all of what you were saying today really speaks to the fact that being one-dimensional versus being multidimensional, being curious, trying to take in information around you, always be on the lookout for new ideas, traveling, reading broadly, watching a lot of media, all of these things, having your eyes open really has tremendous value as an innovator. You mentioned the third element, which I think was number six in the, in the, um, in the methodology, which is the third eye, is also a challenging uh, part of the process. What, how does that work? It's not challenging to do it, actually. It's a lot of fun to do it. Okay. Um, what's challenging is that people don't, again, they have this bias that they don't need it. Like, you have mm -hmm. this amazing idea. You're convinced you figured it out. You know, I've got the brilliant idea for, like, how this is going to change my business. We just need to do this. I just, they just need to listen to me and do it. And what they don't understand is just because it's in your head, it's not don't rush to prototype. Don't rush to persuade people. Don't rush to demand that everybody like it or tell you if they dislike it. You're still in an ideation phase. You still have to gather feedback from external entities to further build the idea. You have to learn if they see what you see. Um, I will... Sometimes people have a hard time understanding that abstract idea of do you see what I see? Because I'm not trying to talk about Hindu mythology there. I'm actually mm. talking about something very practical. Um, and I'll, you know, this isn't an entrepreneurial example, but I think it captures the essence of it quite well. So in my third eye class, to show them so that they can feel it in a way that they won't be, they'll be open-minded and not already set in their ways, I do this exercise where I ask people and you can actually do this at a dinner table. It's, it's a fun exercise to do. I, I say, look, I'm going to give you three minutes. I want you to come up with a brand new word to add to the English language. A word and its definition. Sort of the way you did with FOMO and FOBO. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they first are like, what? I'm like, but actually there's a thousand words added to the English dictionary every year. And so they come up with a word and a definition. And then what I do is I have them go up to 10 different people and they just say their word. They don't say the definition. They just say their word. And they have the other people tell them how they would, what word, what definition that word brings to mind for them. And so now they got 11 different ways of defining that new word, including their own. And it turned, that's when they get to see all the variations in which whatever they're thinking in their head could be interpreted. Now, it turns out, and because we do these little tournaments, um, it turns out that the, the people that stuck to their original word and definition are less likely to win an award. Their, their word is less likely to be picked in the end as the winning word 
versus the people that take into consideration the other variations and come up with a revised definition of their word. They're more likely to win. I love that. It's true what you're saying. I think it's so many times, and I do this for myself, I'm sure many people listening to this, you have some big idea you want to play with. And so you put it out there and you start telling people about it and you tell somebody and you're all excited and their face betrays the fact that they're like, eh, really? And the, 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 the initial reaction is to become defensive, but that's not innovation. Innovation isn't about protecting an idea that you just came up with and did a little work on. Innovation is about taking that idea and refining it to meet the needs of the market so that you have somebody who's willing to pay you for that item. Would you, would you agree with that statement? Sure. And you don't even have to use the third eye just for ideation. I mean, mm-hmm. let's say you're a CEO and you have an idea for a new practice or a new norm. I would, you know, do similar methods. I would say, you know, you know, here's a thought. And then you get other people not to tell you whether they like it or dislike it. You get them to tell you if they were to propose that idea, how would they propose it? Mm. If it was their idea. And then you see the different variations that exist. All right, everybody, you have a new game to play at your dinner tables. The book is called Think Bigger, How to Innovate. If you want to find out more about Sheena, you can go to SheenaIyengar.com or find her on Twitter at Sheena underscore Iyengar or on LinkedIn where she's very active. So lots of good content there. Sheena Iyengar, uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.